All right, we're continuing to Acts chapter 10. I think uh, this is our 28th message from the book of Acts. Obviously going through it too quickly. We've seen so far that Peter has received a great illumination from God, an opening of his mind to inform his heart that the gospel, what Christ has done for sinners, is not a geographical, ethnic, or in any other way confined to a certain nationality. But as he says in verse 35, that in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by God. It's important to see that he says, in every nation. He doesn't say every nation, but in every nation. In every nation. Pointing to individual people's souls, lives, changed by the truth in Jesus Christ. You see that difference, I hope, there. But in every nation. It doesn't say but every nation. And often we have this kind of idea that people want to make a, a nation, a Christian nation, somehow. Well, the first thing that has to happen is that the people who reside there have to be brought to Christ in the first place. You can't have a Christian nation full of pagans. It just doesn't work, and you can't have people honoring the law of God who don't love God. Otherwise, it's just a civil exercise, a system of laws. So it's lives of people who've been changed by the truth in Jesus Christ. It's not about winning cities but transforming people from one kingdom to another. We've talked about the two-kingdom idea for quite some time. The kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From death to life. From lost to found. And so that important thing, and he said, those who work righteousness, and we noticed that the works of righteousness were not the things that bring salvation, but they were the fruits of salvation. Certainly not the cause of salvation, but the effect. The cause of these works are faith in Christ. And that's why Peter was there in the first place. Because Cornelius was already doing good works, but he wasn't doing them in the right way. And they, no matter what good deeds or charitable deeds he did, they were not going to save him. And so God gives him the command to go and bring and send for Peter. And so you notice in verse 6, the Lord tells him, he will tell you what you must do. You may think you've done enough. You're trying, perhaps, to do everything you possibly can. But it's what Jesus does for you and to you that will make all the difference. And 
you see God here using his ordinary means to bring about the salvation of someone that he's calling to be saved. What ordinary means is this? Well, it's the word of God proclaimed. And that's exactly what Peter gets to as we come to our passage this morning. In verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John, which John preached, the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So Peter begins his sermon. The word, the word, it's referred to in several ways throughout the New Testament and the Old as well. The word of righteousness, for in it the righteousness of Christ is revealed. The word of faith, for it is the medium by which faith comes. The word of truth, for in it is nothing but the truth. The word of reconciliation, for in it the word of peace and reconciliation in Christ. And the next thing we say, we see him say here, the word what? Which God sent. The word which God sent. Not the word that God, that, that man concocted. Not the word that man imagined. But the word that God sent. What does this mean? Except that he speaks of its origin, where it came from, <clears throat> and it came from God, not the mind of man. Yea, it came from the hand of man, of course, but holy men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the apostles were sent by Christ with it, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Christianity really, in in, in its essence is a religion of peace. For it, it is a, a religion that begins with peace with God. And with peace with God, it flows out to peace with our fellow man. Christianity is not a warring one. We don't have, like we have with Islam, where you have a sickle or 
a, a scimitar, a, a weapon. We don't have a weapon as our logo. That's not our brand. But what is the picture so often seen? A dove. A picture of, of peace. There really isn't such a thing as a holy war. That is two Christian factions coming together to fight each other on a battlefield. Those are aberrations. Uh, the thirst for power and for land is not that which we find as Christian, as a Christian idea. So the apostles were sent by Christ. Jesus made it clear, speaking several times about peace, and the peace that he gave was not as the world gives. The peace that he gives could not be taken away, was not based on situations, was not based on, quote, good fortune, but it's based on the reality of being reconciled to God through him. <clears throat> so he's the only source of real peace. And Christ, who in this word was promised, he was prophesied, and he was provided as a peacemaker. Now, in verse 37, he says, that word, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Ah, well, you know about this word. Jesus and his apostles went throughout Judea, throughout Galilee. And so those surrounding had to hear something about what was being said and what was going on. After it was proclaimed in John's baptism, that, and as he was the forerunner, if we turn back uh, to Luke chapter 4 for a moment, we get a little bit of what Peter is talking about here. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. So news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And in verse 37, And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And we can look at, uh, at chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. Verse 6. So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. <clears throat> so Peter, as he is speaking to these people, he said, that word, you know, not using, you know, like people use it like every other four words. I went to the store, you know, and I, and I, and I bought some canned corn, you know. Like, you can't get through a sentence somehow without saying you know. That's not what he's doing here. He's making a fact. You know. This that I'm bringing to you is not something you've never heard of before. It's not something totally unheard of. You know about it yourselves because it's been spoken of in your region. So that word, you know, that was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, 
who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. <clears throat> so in essence, Peter is saying, I'm not going to be bringing here to you some novel teaching, some new religious trend, but what I'm bringing to you here is time-honored truth. And what follows is a series of facts. Not suppositions. <clears throat> you know, some are quick to say, you oh, know, religion is all based on supposition. What people think, what people want to be true. An uncertain belief, something that is supposed, a theory, a hypothesis. It always amazes me how people go into a retreat mode when somebody says, well, you know, the Bible not really true, and the things that are, are in there are not really factual. Why do we ever take them aside and say, let me ask you a question. On what basis are you making this statement? Oh, I'm, I'm basing this on other history books that have been written. Okay, here's this history book. Wow, it's popular. It's in its fifth edition. Why isn't it, why isn't it in its fifth edition? Well, we, we, we keep updating it. Well, why do you keep updating it? Well, we keep finding out new things. I see. Sometimes we see programs such as, like on the History Channel, the search for the historical Jesus. You don't have to search. It's like somehow in their minds, the Bible does not give a history. Yet we see them quickly refer to a biography. Someone from a historical period. And you think, okay. They say, well, you know, it, 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 the Bible is biased. It's written by religious people. Okay, so what are you going to do? Well, we've got this biography. Why do people write biographies? Either it's because they really highly esteem that person that they're writing about, or they really dislike that person. But somehow... In the writing of biography, there is, in the author who is writing this biography, a desire that that person's name will not be forgotten. And to me, when you look at that, that's a bias. So you're going to trade, and you're going to say, well, see, this is biased, but this is not. Well, yes, it is because of the, the motive behind the writing in the first place. And so we sometimes have to stop and think about these people who bring challenges and ask, what is your source for saying what you say? Here, we have the historical and we have the factual Jesus. A, a fact of the existence of Christ that is more attested to in the historical record 
than many of the Roman emperors. The gospel is fact, and Peter's going to give us ten facts here. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended. And then we explain the purpose, the reason behind the facts. As we were saying on Wednesday night, it, the, Paul presents facts, and then he gives us the reason for the facts, and the reasons for the facts are what we would call doctrines. Here's what happened. Now this is why that happened. This is the purpose for what happened. And the first fact that he gives us is Jesus is the author of peace. The only peace by which people can find peace. What, what better example do we have of this or illustration do we have of this as a Jew coming into a Gentile's house? People who were opposite of each other. A, a man who would say, you can't go into a Gentile's house. You'll be unclean. You can't touch a Gentile. You'll be unclean. But here, what do we have? A Jew coming into a Gentile's house to do what? To preach the truth of the gospel to them to save their souls. That's peace. It's a great peace. What's the opposite of Jonah? I think we've mentioned him already. But you think about Jonah, he well, go preaching to do it. No. No, not going there. That city is full of Gentiles. And I'm not going to go to see them. The only way I'll go there is if I can get a front row seat to their destruction. Peter, here, in a Gentile's house amongst the Gentile's family and friends. A Jew from Galilee in a Roman's house. On top of that, it's not just a Gentile. This is a Roman centurion. The people who were suppressing the Jews in the area. And so, first thing about Christ, he's the author of peace. Secondly, he tells them, well, he is Lord of all. Lord of all. What a tremendous picture. It means just what it says. If he says he's Lord of all, what does that leave out? Absolutely nothing. It means, in this case, all does mean everything. Lord of the whole world and all that is in it. And he will have the gospel preached to all people. And the, he's commanded us, Peter says, to preach to the people. What does he say next? Well, he says thirdly that he was full of the Holy Spirit and power. Verse 38. Full of the Holy Spirit and power. Well, it's the work of the Trinity. It's not just the Father, it's the Son and the Holy Spirit who are involved in the work of bringing salvation to us. It's 
Father's plan, the Son is sent, the Holy Spirit applies what the, the what Christ has done to our hearts. All that's involved in, in our salvation. Fourth, that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Well, how did he do it? Well, God was with him in his humanity. God was with him, yes. We see that happening, but we also see also that Lord of all comes in under this aspect of what he was doing. He, he had power over demons and over the devil. He could cast out demons, but also at the same time, he could tell the wind and the waves to be still. And he could tell a dead Lazarus, come forth. And so he, he went around doing these things to prove they attested to the fact of, of who he was and Perhaps some of them, as they're hearing people, Peter preach this, they're saying, yeah, we, we heard so, about some of these things. So he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And how did he do it? Well, God was, was with him. The fifth, that's a very important point. Verse 39 and we are witnesses of all things which he did. We are witnesses. This is not something that I'm making up. This is not hearsay. This is not secondhand information. This is eyewitness accounts. These are eyewitness accounts. He didn't do it in secret so that some could dismiss the things that were being done. These are the facts. He did these things openly because... Why did he do things openly? Because he had no fear of failure. If he set about to do something, it was going to be done. And so he didn't have to say, here, let me get over here on the side and try this out first. No fear of failure. So he did everything in the open. The sixth thing that he says, whom they killed by, bottom of verse 39, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. They crucified him, killed him by hanging on a tree. And then the seventh fact is in verse 40, well, God raised him up on the third day. So you have the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the eighth truth that he gives about Christ is the resurrection was not a secret resurrection but it was displayed openly verse 40 whom God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead he was displayed openly to those who were chosen and that number was upwards of 500 people and he said we we ate and we drank with him after he rose from the dead and then the ninth thing that he tells us after 
We see in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people, testify that it is he, what were they supposed to testify to? That he was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In that section in John that was in the Sunday school class today. The important thing to understand when he said, whoever sins you remit, their sins are forgiven, but whoever sins you retain, they are retained. How does that come about? Through the preaching of the gospel and the reaction to the gospel. As you preach the gospel, judgment is going forth. Either it's going to be that those people see the truth by the blessing of the Holy Spirit working in them, they embrace the truth and get swept. Their sins are forgiven. But to those who reject, their sins are retained. It's not like Peter and the rest of them are going through with little cubicles and saying, we're going to set up in every area and you'll have to come by and talk to us about your sins and we'll tell you by whether we can have those sins forgiven and we'll tell you the means by which you can do them by whether incantations or repeated prayers or, or the removing the moving of beads. It's not that. That's a system that they say, well, that's how we get this system is where as priests we, we, can, we can forgive sins and we can retain. No, 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 you're not God. Jesus made it very clear, only God forgives sins. And how does he do it? Only through Jesus Christ. You can say 800 Hail Marys. And you can say 2,000 Our Fathers. And you can do the Holy Rosary till your fingers are blistered. And you won't be forgiven one thing. In fact, you'll be adding sin onto sin because you'll be trying to bypass what Jesus has done to earn your forgiveness. ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And of course we'll see that in his return when he comes. It'll be very clear. And then finally 10. To him all the prophets witnessed that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. You might say, what were those Old Testament Prophets pointing to, they were pointing to him. Even uh, David is included in the number of prophets because of all the prophecies about Christ that we find in the Psalms. All the prophets witnessed. Moses was in the class of the prophets prophesying about Christ. To him all the prophets witnessed. But through his name, whoever believes in him receive remission of sins. Even in that sacrificial system, we say, okay, that's the prophets, but, but what about the law? Does that point to him? Well, certainly. We think about the sacrificial system. It's also known as the ceremonial law. It always pointed to sins being transferred from the sinner to the spotless. You can bring old mangy sheep or goat up there with half its coat falling off. You brought the best, the spotless animal to represent the sinless perfection of Christ. 
And everyone who did this saw illustrated for them that their sins they could do nothing about. They had to be transferred onto something else. And so basically every time there was a sacrifice, the gospel's being proclaimed in picture. And so Peter encompasses the, the time before Jesus came, the time that he came, and what he did when he was here, then the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return. He presents them as facts, not speculation, not superstition. Why? He said, because we are witnesses. We saw him before, and we saw him after. And what they witnessed is now written. And so therefore, that which we hold in our hands is a witness. A witness of God to the truth of Christ. And not only do we see the facts, but we see what the facts mean. And when it comes down to it, that one first statement, Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of the living. He's Lord of the dead. He's Lord of the past. He's Lord of the present. He's Lord of the future. And those who say, I don't trust this. What do you trust? And how will it be at that time when Jesus returns and will judge the living and the dead? Will you be amongst those who say to the rocks and the hills, fall upon us? Or will you be amongst those who say, my Lord, my Savior, I've prayed. I've prayed for this moment. And here it is. Let's stand together for prayer.